Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and this is Reading Our Times, the podcast that explores the books and ideas that are shaping us today. We're going to be talking to some of the world's leading authors about meritocracy, justice, populism, human rights. And we'll link all these to deeper philosophical questions. Above all, how should we understand what it means to be human? So if you're curious about books, ideas and human beings, please join us. Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the ideas that shape us, and the humans behind the positions in our public conversations. Each episode, I speak to someone involved in public debates, and I ask them about what they hold sacred and what they've learned about engaging across difference. In this episode, I spoke to Mark Vernon. Mark is a psychotherapist who also writes, lectures, and broadcasts on philosophy with a focus on insights that illuminate our inner lives. He was formerly a priest in the Church of England and has written books on friendship, agnosticism, consciousness and love. His most recent book is A Secret History of Christianity, which is based upon the ideas of Owen Barfield, sometimes called The Lost Inkling. We spoke about why he left the Church of England, his time as nearly an atheist, and how he found his way back to experiencing the presence of the divine. Sadly, the sound quality is not quite all we might have hoped on this one, which is just one of the realities of recording remotely during a pandemic. I'm sure you will still enjoy listening. Many thanks. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. And you've had a little bit of time to reflect on your sacred values. What came up? How did you react to the question? I thought they might change, actually, over time. Um, But one that came to my mind pretty quickly now was imagination that our capacity to enter inner worlds that might tell us something about ourselves might tell us something about the world around us um, feels to me to be absolutely crucial to what it is to be human Um, so that capacity to run with the imagination feels pretty sacred have you experienced I guess, moments in your life or systems or institutions where you feel that's under pressure, ways that sacred value is being compromised or um, there's a threat it might be compromised? Yeah, so um, I think generally speaking in the modern world, imagination uh, gets downgraded. It's thought to be just sheer fantasy um, and maybe entertaining, but not really going to be telling you anything truthful about yourself or the world Um, and you know I work as a psychotherapist and often one of the turning points early in psychotherapy is when people start to realize that their imagination is key to understanding more than just what they know about themselves already be that just in terms of what comes to mind as they speak or in things like dreams Um, so I think that generally in our culture imagination is massively underplayed um, and I think also that maybe in churches, um, the imagination is rather constrained. Um, in in some ways, it's brilliantly supported. You know, if you walk into a beautiful Gothic building, your imagination is immediately sparked. Um, but I also wonder whether um, it's 
churches maybe unwittingly try and direct it too much in certain ways, particularly in ways that uh, are understandable to the Christian imaginary and um, that fit Christian language, say. Um, and so I increasingly feel keen on uh, supporting the imagination to run in whatever ways it will. Um, and I wonder whether things like pilgrimages and other um, activities like that, which are often called more spiritual rather than religious, partly the appeal of that is that the imagination feels freer for people in those contexts. That's really helpful. And I want to talk a bit more about the kind of spiritual but not religious space and what you see emerging there, not least after um, the 2020 coronavirus pandemic. But first, I want to get a sense of the journey that you've been on, a sense of your story. So I'd love you to paint a picture of your childhood. I'm sure as someone who's done a lot of therapy and taken a lot of people through psychotherapy, you have a clearer sense of your childhood than most. So any particular big ideas that were in the air, philosophical or political or religious that have really shaped you? I'd love to hear about those too. Yeah. So I was born into a church family. Uh, my father uh, is a clergyman, and so that was a big part of um, the milieu of of our childhood. I think it was it was conservative, not in the sense so, a socially conservative Christianity, um, not religiously conservative. So not in the sense of um, being particularly um, strict about what the Bible may or may not say. But I think socially conservative. Um, for a lot of my childhood, um, my father was um, in the army. Um, so that is a very rich environment in one way. Um, you know, social relations, you know what you're doing, I think. Um, people belong um, in the forces, um, which works when you feel you belong. But I think probably from quite an early age, I increasingly felt I didn't belong, and which it's a second huge factor, which is um, I'm gay. And um, I, I see more and more actually how um, feeling that my emotional desires, longings, the sort of shape of my inner life had um, this particular uh, inflection that mostly implicitly, only occasionally overtly, but steadily all the time I knew wasn't acceptable um, and I think that made me withdraw and I think it made me actually quite interested in intellectual ideas um, as a sort of retreat um, you know I ended up doing a philosophy PhD but um, I think that stretched all the way back actually. Um, Did the army mean you had to move around a lot? Yeah so we moved every three years or so um, and lived in Germany as well as in England um, I, I'm, I, I, I quite enjoyed that, I think. I mean, when I think about Germany, living in Germany, I only have good memories. It was actually, this was in the, in the sort of early 80s, and um, it was quite an exciting place to live, actually. Just in terms of food, for example, you know, in England in those days, there was only spaghetti, whereas when you went to Germany, there was all sorts of pasta, which we now take for granted. So, and I remember enjoying the culture of, like, cafe and kuchen, going for coffee and cake in um, in stores and things, um, which, again, felt very exotic. Um, so that, that side of it, I only – I have sort of good memories, good feelings about it. And, you know, your dad was a vicar. What, what was your relationship like 
both with God and with Christianity at that stage? What was the sort of lived experience of religion in your childhood? I think I was always um, drawn to it, um, but always wanting to feel the life of it rather than just um, the kind of social life of it. Um, so um, I was, I think, interested in the big questions, you know, and and then when I at school, I was very involved in the school chapel. Um, I was, I think, I was probably quite an earnest teenager when it came to religion. Um, and then when I left school, I did a gap year that was involved with a kind of monastic approach to um, Christianity, which is so involved. I'm living a sort of particular way of life around prayer, simplicity, uh, talking a lot, doing Bible study, um, that kind of sp- developing your spirituality. And I, I, it was a strange year for, in, in some ways, but the thing I did like about it was that it was, it was enthusiastic about what this Christianity could be. I mean, it did, it, like it really did matter. It could change things rather than just being the kind of backdrop to um, social life. Um, which is perhaps yeah. at least how I'd experienced it before. And the, your vocation, your sense of calling to be a vicar, how early did that come? Um, I Is it, sorry to interrupt, is it all right to, you're not a vicar now and we'll talk a bit about that, but it's all right to call it a vocation? How does that word land with you, given that history? Yeah, no, it's, it's fine. I mean, it's a sort of term that's used, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, my, I think I'm clearer about my vocation now than I was back then, funnily enough, but yeah. And but how early did it come? When did you start thinking about being a priest? I think being a priest must have been on my mind for quite a while, but it wasn't actually until I went to university as an undergraduate that um, someone started suggesting to me that um, I could be ordained. Um, I went I, I went through a lot of ups and downs um, to do around Christianity in my university time. I got very involved in student politics. Um, and particularly around um, gay issues, it was the time of Clause 28, which was, um, you know, when the public and political mood turned certainly very nervous about homosexuality, if not overtly anti-gay. And um, so I got very involved in campaigning around that and um, the church's attitudes towards homosexuality um, broadly put me off um, as well at that point. But um, funny enough, the, 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 the church people, the Church of England people that I always knew were always either not really very worried about homosexuality or were quite inclusive. And so um, in terms of personal contact, it didn't really matter. Um, so I, I ended up going to a selection conference um, that the Church of England offers. And I, I kind of sailed through it, I think, I, only because I, I was so familiar with church culture. I had some experience of parishes. I was interested in theology. Um, you know, emotionally sensitive enough. <laughs> um, so I kind of got through it and ended up at Theological College. Um, in retrospect, I can see without it, in a way, having really been tested, strangely. Um, and it wasn't actually until I'd gone through Theological College and ended up in a parish to do the first job that's called a curacy that things started going wrong for me. Um, and so my, I start, that's when I really started questioning my vocation and what I just can't imagine how painful that is to you know follow what you feel God's calling you to and then get into it and realize that maybe it isn't where you're supposed to be what uh what triggered it and how did you deal with it 
Um, I, 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 I think in retrospect, I had a kind of uh, slow motion breakdown over about two years um, where increasingly I just couldn't find the energy to keep going um, and ended up leaving. Um, and um, I noticed it because I got very lonely. Um, I, li- I was living on my own for the first time, which I think was part of the shock, actually. Um, I, I was working in a parish in the northeast of England, which was very friendly in its own way. Um, but I didn't know anyone intimately there. Um, and so I got very lonely. And um, But then also the, the, the day-to-day work of parish life, I found very dispiriting. Um, there were some things which were um, energizing. I, I quite like taking funerals, for example, because it felt like these it really mattered and people are alive um, at times of death. Um, and so I, I, I really like that side. But a lot of the what felt to me just like um, uh, fairly meaningless social activities in the church, which I, 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 I realized that saying it, putting it like that, um, is quite demeaning of probably what was very, very important um, part of life for many, many people. But for me, I just couldn't really get into it. Um, and so a lot of the day-to-day pastoral work, um, I f- which didn't really seem to be going anywhere, I, I, I found increasingly depressing. Um, so the combination of my own personal kind of collapse, but then realizing I just wasn't connecting with the work of a parish um, led to me leaving. And you went on to pursue philosophy as a kind of, it sounds like a sort of alternative vocation, at, at least at the time. What what was the thread you were pulling on there? Was it, was it as simple as, you know, that I haven't found wisdom in this institution right now. I'm looking for it somewhere else. Or the, are the two things more connected in your head? Yeah. Um, well, I, when, I, when I left the other big strands of when I left the church was, I felt like I was... Um, leaving certainly Christianity behind and quite possibly belief in God behind as well. So I felt it was my kind of almost atheist moment. And I felt I'd finally woken up to the modern world and was breathing the air of the modern enlightenment and and all that. Um, So again, my kind of intellectual side kicked in and tried to rationalize what was going on. Um, And that took me towards philosophy. But I did end up doing um, a PhD on Plato, ancient Greek philosophy. And I realize now that I was drawn to that kind of philosophy rather than modern philosophy, because there um, there is still actually quite a lot of space for spirit. um, And who you are in ancient philosophy matters quite as much as what you're trying to think about. And in fact, my PhD ended up being on why friendship is so important in Plato. Um, and I think that it's partly because it's in friendship that you can bring all that you are to what you're trying to get to grips with. Um, and um, so turning to Plato certainly was the beginning of of trying to reassemble a worldview that otherwise um, had rather collapsed. And you became for a little while there, and I know this because this is when I first interacted with you, a bit of a poster boy for agnosticism. How quickly did that kind of settle into an identity and... You know, what led you to want to be speaking in public about that? And was it around the same time that the new atheism was peaking and you were presenting it as an alternative or was that, help me understand the timeline there. Yeah, um, it was before the new atheism. So it would have been in the 90s. Um, and I got onto agnosticism because I, this is what I understood Socrates to 
be about, that the key to wisdom is understanding the limits of what you know rather than just proving what you think you know. Um, and so I, I, I really warmed to that because it, it spoke to where I was at. You know, I, I don't think I was ever really an atheist. Um, I sort of had a sense of, of more than just the material world, more than just what the natural sciences could tell us. Um, so I can never really wholeheartedly throw myself into atheism. So the word agnostic um, was the more natural one, but I didn't really like it in the sense of just don't really care. And um, I wanted to, agnosticism to be a bit more of a way of life. <laughs> um, and so I wrote this book called How to Be an Agnostic, which um, tried to show how various big figures like Socrates um, had realized that exploring this edge of our sense of what is and what is not actually is the kind of um, the growing edge, the cutting edge, the vanguard of the expansion of our awareness of things. Um, so that's I, I try to champion it. I don't think it really works. The word agnostic just doesn't really quite cut that that sort of activity. Uh, you didn't manage to build a movement around it. No, I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> and how do you feel about the word now, or the concept, or it as a label relating to you? Um, now, um, I feel about it differently again. Um, I actually feel now much, uh, much more straightforwardly theistic in a way. You know, I definitely say I, well, I'd even go further than saying I believe in God. I said I, I, I feel divine presence um, quite fully now. Um, but um, I, I'm very keen that, um, that that awareness doesn't get kind of closed down by um, particular theistic language of one sort or another. So I'm, it, it, for me, it feels much more like living with a dynamic presence um, that sometimes, you know, traditional language can help with, but I'm, I'm very wary of it, traditional language around God too, because I think it, it, it can close things down as much as open things up. So in that sense, um, I'd still be um, agnostic about a lot of the language used around God. I mean, when I think, when I just think of very basic issues, like what word do I like using in, you know, where people might use the word God. Um, I, f I find myself tending to talk about the divine or um, the divine presence, uh, awareness, that, that sort of thing feels more directly connected to how I experience these things. Yeah, I'm always torn between just wanting to talk about God because we'd skirt around that such a lot. And particularly, obviously, in my world, talking about religion, people are really happy to talk about all the things around the edges, I mean, they're not necessarily around the edges, but all the things that people feel safe with, like social action or even ritual. But the God word really quite easily sets people into a defensive position. And so I have real sympathy for you kind of wanting to find alternatives as a way in. And then part of me wonders if that um, it just sort of puts off the encounter. But none of, you know, what's, I think, it's very Christian apophatic theology to be very um, skeptical about the possibility of any language encompassing the thing we're talking about, right? So yeah, maybe that's a good posture. Yeah, I mean, and, and if I feel well, I, I mean, not if I do feel enthusiastic about uh, religion again, spirituality again, but it's very much um, in the area of what would traditionally be called mystical Christianity um, or visionary Christianity, perhaps. Um, yeah. So it, it, again, linking back to the imagination, it's one that can feel free with the divine encounter. Um, yeah. yeah. And we'll come on to talk about Barfield in a moment because I know that that's been a big influence on you. But the sort of final thread, I mean, not, not the final thread, but what's key kind of looking at your 
life and the things you've been involved in is you've been pulling on various threads all about the inner life, whether that's through the priesthood, whether that's through philosophy or through psychotherapy, this sense of um, the kind of mental health play space. Um, I know part of the way you got into that was having therapy yourself. What do you feel the kind of role of psychotherapy is now in our common life and maybe even our public conversations, although it always seems to be in the background of things rather than at the forefront. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel it's um, it's got a lot to offer because I actually think that the most powerful force around in individuals or in groups in society is actually the human psyche. Um, I think that that is where kind of energy for life um, bursts onto the stage I don't think it's the origin of it, um, but I do think that's where it kind of very powerfully bursts onto the stage. Um, and so psychotherapy has got its own problems with communicating to wider audiences. You know, it has its own language um, and it, it can be very defensive too. Um, but uh, I, I do think that as um, a practice that has really seriously tried to understand how the human psyche works, both individually and in groups, um, it's got a, a huge amount to offer. And some of that has filtered into the wider consciousness, um, you know, notions like there might be dynamics of which were unconscious. Um, you know, that's a lot of people can relate to that. Um, but there's a whole lot more besides. Um, and in terms of my own journey, um, I, I went into psychotherapy, partly out of interest, but partly because I realized um, I really needed to. Again, I was I was shut off from a, a, a quite a big chunk of myself, particularly I was, you know, I, I loved the intellectual side, was very wary of the felt side. Um, and um, that's like cutting off half of yourself in a way and maybe even the most dynamic half. Um, so um, going into therapy and again, ha it, it was a sort of another slow motion breakdown, actually, um, because the felt side of me, I was very wary of, you know, I, 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 I didn't really trust it. Um, so it, it took a kind of a bit of a crash to get get into it, um, but you know that that's partly what therapy offers. It offers a, a stable framework to do that within, um, and doesn't leave you sort of stranded. Um, Sounds like I think one of the perceptions in the kind of in the public mind is that psychotherapy and religion or Christianity, particularly, are if not necessarily opposing, definitely quite different and separate and sort of, you know, you might, you, you would do one or the other, but you probably wouldn't do both. And I know you've written on the relationship between faith and psychotherapy, but it's now the way you narrated that makes me, makes me wonder if you see a connection between, was it therapy that allowed you to come sort of in some way circle back around to spirituality and a form of Christianity that you felt at home and it helped you be in that place where you could feel the divine again? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I think that it, um, it sort of, unblocked at least to some significant degree and what was going on inside my own mind my own body um and when i was much less defended in that domain um it, it made me much more open to um to, to god to um you know spiritual dynamics uh, apart from the ones that I, I i had presumed i was more or less in control of um yeah so psychotherapy certainly it was the kind of practice that um uh, that, that gave me a lot more freedom, and that was that. That's why I feel now I can actually talk about the divine presence rather than just say believing in God. In fact, if I say I believe in God, it sounds a bit heady to me now. Um, it doesn't really touch my experience, which is that we 
move through kind of um, you know waves of meaning, if you like, um, you know places, encounters. Everything has a kind of felt inequality, um, and I see that kind of expanding out ultimately to um, you know to the divine presence. Yeah, that's so helpful, and I think it is one of the things. One of my biggest frustrations with public conversations around religion is this idea that you kind of signed a doctrinal form and then were inducted into membership of this thing that's basically a set of premises. And for for me and for most Christians, at least, it, it's much more experiential. You know, I, I became a Christian through a, a, a mystical, ecstatic encounter. And therefore, sort of when people want to get me into debates on very detailed um, elements of doctrine or dogma. I'll do it if I have to, because I know that stuff isn't irrelevant, but it also feels to be largely missing the point. Um, and so I find that that very helpful. Um, I think maybe there is a connection there with Barfield and lots of people won't have heard of Owen Barfield. He's sort of known as the lost inkling writing alongside C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and, and Dorothy L. Sayers in that kind of mid 20th century um, flowering i guess of christian intellectual christian public intellectuals in some form but he's also you know he's he's a he's a unique person how did you first come across him what what draws you to him yeah uh, i i can't quite remember actually how i first heard his name i think one time was i was listening to a lecture um, by the cambridge evolutionary psychologist evolutionary biologist simon conway morris and um he's a mainstream evolutionary scientist but is also known for um, enjoying the more speculative end of evolutionary theory as well. And I heard him give a talk once on language and how language arose. Um, and he mentioned this figure, Owen Barfield, as maybe having a key because the origins of the, uh, language aren't very understood, well understood in evolutionary theory. Um, and so that pricked my ears because I like what he has to say anyway. I find him a very exciting person to listen to. Um, and then, but then also, someone else said to me that I, I, I did this PhD on Plato, and but although it was, I enjoyed it in many ways. Um, I felt I hadn't quite come to grips with what Plato was on about. Um, and so, and then someone said to me, "You should read Owen Barfield because one of his key points is that to understand particularly ancient uh, or even medieval um, writers, you have to first of all unthink what you think." Um, they might mean um, by words like, I don't know, in Plato's case, words like theory or words like um, analogy or these kind of key, heavy, big philosophical words in Plato. Um, because Barfield, he, he discovered, I think, I mean, he, he, didn't, just, he didn't just imagine it. Um, he actually imagined it and then found evidence for how human consciousness um, evolves quite dramatically over time. And he was very interested in words. And what he did was he used words to track back how human awareness perception changes over the centuries, um, which you can do. And um, he realized that we still read figures like Socrates and Plato. And then it led, I think, into the origins of Christianity. The reason why Jesus became such a seminal figure was part of the same dynamic, that a new awareness of what it was to be human was just beginning to come together, um, which was that um, the individual might have um, 
a direct encounter with the divine rather than, say, in the time of Homer or I think in the earliest parts of the Hebrew Bible, where it was a much more collective experience. Um, and the sort of shorthand way of putting it is that um, Jesus was the one individual who was fully human. And it's because his humanity was of the sort um, that he could say, I am. Um, he knew himself as a particular individual rather than, say, being part of uh, kin or city um, place, which was a much more natural way of identifying yourself before. Um, and it was that intensity of his own individuality that meant that he could become completely transparent, I think, to the divine individuality, to monotheism, because monotheism was emerging as a perception of the divine at this time too. Um, and so the, in, in the Jewish way, you'd say that the divine I am could be reflected in the individual I am. And so this launched a whole new dispensation um, around Christianity, and that particularly in the West um, came you know, very substantially to, to define things, certainly up to the arrival of Islam. Um, so uh, Barfield gave me, uh, that, that's a bit, bit, bit highbrow, but Bar Barfield gave me a kind of way of being able to relate to Christianity um, that gave it this story as to why it was so significant. Um, that you could both relate to by looking at words and how they change meaning. And that I find that quite exciting in its own right. It's kind of a journey of discovery about how the medieval mind was so different and then the ancient mind was different again. But it also meant that I could um, relate to the significance of this figure of Jesus and actually you know, use all the traditional Christian formularies for understanding Jesus, the notion of the incarnation, being fully God, fully human, but in a way that felt fresh and um, exciting to me, actually. Um, so brought it all back to life. Um, yeah. I feel became really, really important to me for that reason. That's really interesting. And I, I feel like it's uh, the best thinkers are the ones that help us sort of see the water in which we're swimming. You know, the, the things that we take for granted and realizing it isn't, it isn't inevitable that we ended up where we are. Um, I think a lot of us are asking questions about trajectory at the moment, about in a moment of crisis. I mean, our mutual friend, Jonathan Rousen, has been talking about a meta crisis for a while. So I don't think the pandemic is the first crisis we've encountered in recent years. But in a moment of crisis, what does that mean for religion, for spirituality, for our search for meaning? And there's all these polls coming out. And, you know, we did one ourselves. You know, are people asking bigger existential questions? Could this be a moment of, you know, religious revival or philosophical enlightenment or, you know, a new moral courage? And I think the honest answer is, you know, we don't know yet. But I think the traditional story that we tell is that broadly religion is on the decline and secularism marches on, you know, the, the upward march of the scientific priesthood will save us. You and I think Barfield or maybe Barfield and therefore you narrate these changes a bit differently, don't you? Not as a either a straightforwardly upward trajectory towards reason or a downward trajectory uh, away from religion, but something a bit more dynamic. Help me understand that the way that you both narrate it. Yeah, thank you. So um, he thought that either individuals actually or cultures go through cycles of what he called um, withdrawal of participation, by which he just meant that our sense of how we engage with our own inner lives and the world around us um, becomes alienated, disconnected. There's a kind of crisis around it. Um, but he thought that that has a kind of upside because it means that the sense of being yourself um, and the sense of your own agency, your own power, if you like, 
um, can increase through that crisis. And But it, it's not the end point. It, it then can lead to a reconnection with the world around us. Um, but with a kind of a raised consciousness, so you're more um, overtly involved in the world around and in, in a certain kind of way freer too um, to navigate the world around. Um, it's become a bit more complex and diversified. Um, you know, so uh, an obvious example of that would be um, the centrality now of considering feminist positions, um, which has emerged over the course of the 20th century. Um, and that makes things more complicated, um, but potentially also makes things much, much richer. Um, and it can produce a sense of, well, even anger, um, but, um, you know, a sense of confusion, certainly. But if um, that can be worked through, um, then it, it, it makes for a much uh, more expanded experience of what it is to be human and then also what it is to, to relate to the world around us as well. So this kind of pattern of withdrawal and then re-engagement was how he understood individual life and cultural life. And so he understood the scientific revolution, actually, particularly from the 19th century. Um, you know, in the 17th and 18th century, early science, as, as one of your colleagues, um, Nick, has written about extensively, um, amongst others, um, is, uh, was very religious, actually. Um, you know, a lot of the early scientists thought they were doing um, they were pursuing their Christian vocation through early science. But in the 19th century, atheism, scientific atheism, really um, did start to form. And Barfield understood that as a moment of withdrawal, um, where um, in a way it became necessary for science really to understand itself on its own terms. But he thought that that will lead to a turning point where science can then, knowing itself fully, start to reconnect with um the inner life that otherwise it has rather dismissed both of you know human inner life, which in psychology would be known as the behavioral movement, um, where um, in the 20th century behaviorists were only interested in what you do, not what you might be feeling. That's 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 turning around very substantially now. Um, and then also um, in terms of um, hard hard sciences, um, I think increasingly in in biology and certainly in physics, which actually is I did a physics degree as an undergraduate, so I feel it's the one I know a little bit more directly. Um, all sorts of questions about consciousness um, and how things operate at all sorts of different levels of reality, not just at reductive levels. That is now where all the new, all the research is going. And um, for Barfield, that would be an indication that things are turning around. Um, and, and broadly speaking, the, the tradition of science which was held in the romantic strains um, from figures like Goethe, um, von Humboldt, which are actually much bigger in France and Germany than in the Anglo-American world, um, where a, a imagination, um, joining the dots, seeing the bigger picture, trying to work about at things from the top down, not just from the bottom up. Um, I think that is going to be the trajectory of science, which we'll see through the 21st century. And it's you know already, I think, becoming much warmer again towards spiritual traditions and will increasingly be so. Does it make you feel more hopeful for our futures? Um, I, the, the psychotherapist in me always knows that the good exists alongside the bad in the human mind. Um, you know, I think we all have hate as well as love within us, rage as well as affection, um, envy as well as um, desire. Um, and so nothing is taken for granted. Um, 
and you know there are i'm sure maybe not existential threats in the sense that we'll get wiped out but there are certainly threats around that could very dramatically change society as we know it um i mean in, in terms of covid um i think my sense right now after six months of it or so is more that it's exposed where we're a bit lacking as a culture rather than really throwing our society into crisis i think actually given the threat that was forecast probably society has got done quite well um you know there haven't been millions of people dying for all that there have been tens of thousands and the tragedy of that um but i think it has exposed say certainly in the church this big question now is certainly what's the established church the church really got to offer our culture beyond saying be good citizens and i'm not sure that that is at all clear and what that yeah. might be yeah on that i'm going to ask uh, a final question I'm just trying to frame it, and I think it's particularly because you're someone who has been a Christian, a priest, and then nearly an atheist, and then an agnostic, and now someone who'd call themselves a, a theist of, of of some kind, and who pays attention both very much to the inner life and how that plays out in our public conversations. What would you maybe not maybe advice is too too much to ask from a psychotherapist, um, but you know what would be your call to um, people interested in the future of spirituality and religion in this country? What are the things you would maybe ask them to, to not do or to stop saying or to resist? And anything you'd like to just encourage um, in us um, who, who are concerned about the soul mm. <laughs> um, of the future? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, the word that comes to mind is actually listen. Um, I think that um, learning that the future of um God's presence in the world does not depend upon us, um, but we can collaborate with it more or less successfully. Um, and I think a key task in that collaboration is listening. And the traditional way of putting it would be listening to where the spirit is blowing. Um, or an even more traditional way of putting it would be to, to remark that mission is not our mission, it's God's mission. Um, and you know, the, 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 the task really is to try and become aligned to what's going on, whether that be in people's lives or in cultural movements, um, and working out how to facilitate, amplify, discern, um, you know, run with that. Um, I think that's very difficult in churches like the Church of England because they have their own soul in a way, they have their own life, and uh, it's the, the, the spontaneous um, reaction is to try and defend that own life because it's loved, because it's valued, and it has good in it as well. Um, but I think it, it it, it's not, it doesn't seem to be where many people are at in the 21st century anymore. Um, whereas I, my sense is that a lot of people are interested in inner life, um, even if they're nervous of words like religion and spirituality. Um, and so listening to where that feels like it's alive um, and then how to contribute to that, how to amplify that. Um, I mean, to, I, I'm very interested in William Blake. I live in South London. And I think William Blake um, has got a sort of map of consciousness almost um, where he, if you um, use him and what he said, you can sort of track um, almost like what zone you're in in any particular time. You know, are you in a rather reductive rational zone? Are you in one that's more concerned with survival 
um, and keeping things going, which was a second zone for him? Are you in a more ethical zone where relationship and love is what really matters? That was a third zone for him. And then there's a fourth zone, which actually is interested in um, eternal life, how things like freedom and time and death actually can start to be experienced in very, very different ways from how we usually experience them in, in the modern world. Um, and he's useful not because he has a program so much as, you know, do this and follow that, but more like, can you develop the capacity to hear where you're at, to listen to what's going on around you? And then you get the, um, the capability to, to navigate towards what feels more expansive and what feels good. Um, and, and psychotherapy is quite like that. You know, psychotherapy does have things to say. It has tips and techniques and, and things to help people, which are good when the people are in crisis. You know, for goodness sakes, when people are in crisis, they need active help. But ultimately, what you want people to do is to be to realize they're far bigger than they actually realize and that to become more and more aligned with the biggest, the most expansive um, and um, well, ultimately, I think even divine parts of yourself, that is the way to go. Um, uh, yeah. So listening and, uh, and navigating, um, I think, are crucial, crucial things, which we're not very good at. Mark Vernon, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Soup Shop Productions, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast, or me at Theos Elizabeth, or thesacredpodcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.